0: All right, let's go ahead and get started. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, As always, we're grateful to the British Society of Aesthetics for their continued support of this series of talks. And I'm very pleased today to have Ravi Kubala from the University of California at Santa Cruz. Uh, In addition to aesthetics, Ravi also works in moral philosophy. Uh, Some of you may know his papers in either of these topics. He's written on intention and interpretation, on Proust, on love, among other things. And his title today is Practice-Based Accounts of Aesthetic Normativity. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone, for coming. There's a handout in the back. It's two pages. So this talk is part of a larger project about how existing aesthetic practices shape the normative reasons that we have. And there's been a lot of interest lately in questions of aesthetic normativity, be Uh, reasons, norms, and obligations to which the aesthetic domain gives rise. So I just want to start with a brief overview of what I take those issues to be. Uh, And then in the main part of the talk, I want to argue for one way in which aesthetic practices are relevant to those issues. I'm going to do that by introducing a puzzle about how to reconcile our interest in aesthetic correctness, in getting things right aesthetically, with our interest in aesthetic value, in getting something aesthetically good. I'm going to claim that we can solve the puzzle by distinguishing the justification of a practice, which appeals to some external value, from the justification of an action or attitude falling under that practice, which appeals to some internal standard of correctness. I'm going to discuss three examples that illustrate this logical distinction. Score compliance in musical performance, the look of a mode lawn, and literary interpretation. So three <laughs> disparate examples which I claim will illustrate the same uh, distinction. And these examples show that aesthetic practice norms enjoy a kind of autonomy, in the sense that facts about the correct actions to perform and the correct attitudes to have are explained by norms internal to a practice. But there's a distinct question of which practices we have reason to opt into, which of the correct actions are the actions that we have reason to perform. And in the third part of the talk, I'm going to be discussing some of the available answers to that question, which get at the source of aesthetic normativity by explaining in virtue of what aesthetic values are reason-giving for us at all. There I won't be offering a positive proposal so much as raising a number of objections to existing answers. But the positive lesson will be that whatever theory of aesthetic normativity we ultimately adopt, it needs to meet the structural constraint of distinguishing reasons internal and external to practices. So uh, section one, as I'm understanding it, the central question of aesthetic normativity can be stated pretty simply. How do aesthetic values give us aesthetic reasons? And this question really divides into three each of which has been the subject of long-standing debate. First, what are aesthetic values? Are they properties that stand in a constitutive relation to finally valuable experiences, as the tradition of aesthetic empiricism has it? Or are they properties of aesthetic objects, independently of the value of the experiences they afford, as the object theory has it? Second, reasons for what? What kind of reasons are given by aesthetic values? Are they reasons for theoretical beliefs or critical judgments only? Are they reasons for the distinctive mental state that constitutes appreciation, where appreciation cannot be analyzed in terms of theoretical or practical judgment? Or are they a subset of practical reasons, reasons to act more generally? This question is bound up with the demarcation of the aesthetic from other normative domains, and whether aesthetic reason should be individuated in terms of distinctively aesthetic properties in the world or a distinctively aesthetic response in the agent. Third, what is the source of aesthetic normativity? That is, in virtue of what are aesthetic values reason-giving? Is it pleasure, as hedonists have it? Achievement, as Dom Lopez's network theory has it? The basic value of beauty, as primitivism has it? Or is it some non-aesthetic value, such as perhaps a moral value? Notice that even if we settle this third question and hold that, say, pleasure is in general the source of aesthetic normativity, we still want to know exactly how that pleasure bears on our normative reasons. So an agent-neutral hedonist might hold that, say, everyone has reason to attend to the masterpieces identified by ideal judges of taste, while an agent-relative hedonist might hold that agents should attend to the aesthetic objects that are most capable of giving them pleasure in fact. I'll say a lot more about this third question in the last part of the talk, but hopefully these brief remarks provide some orienting context to the basic issues at stake here. So I've called this talk Practice-Based Accounts of Aesthetic Normativity. And what makes an account practice-based is the claim that the social practices of the aesthetic and norms internal to those practices explain the existence existence and content of some aesthetic reasons. And by a practice, I mean something fairly minimal, here inspired, as you may have already noticed, by Rawls' two concepts of rules. A practice is a shared form of activity, partially constituted by norms, govern roles, moves, and standards of correctness for actions and attitudes. Now much of the motivation to appeal to social practices has come from the philosophy of art. So philosophers like Danto, Dickey, Carroll have done a lot to get us thinking about the institutional and cultural traditions of the art world. But I'm going to be understanding artistic practices, or at least the vast majority of them, as aesthetic (coughs) practices, and there are plenty of aesthetic practices that aren't practices of the arts. So even an expanded conception of the artistic, one that includes tattoo making and landscape gardening, typically doesn't include our practices of bird watching, tea drinking, interior design, other elements of the everyday aesthetic. I take it as a necessary condition on an aesthetic practice that it attributes aesthetic values to objects. Where aesthetic values are those that appear on lists like Frank Sibley's. Uh, here's a quote from Sibley: list of some uh, canonical aesthetic values. Unified, balanced, integrated, lifeless, serene, somber, dynamic, powerful, vivid, delicate, moving, trite, sentimental, tragic. Just as a painting or a film can be lifeless or powerful, so can the plumage on a bird, or the tile arrangement on a kitchen floor. So, as I said, I want to motivate the appeal to a practice-based account by showing how it can solve a certain puzzle. But it's worth flagging the possibility of additional motivations. One is simply that it just looks like there are a lot of diverse aesthetic norms. There are better and worse ways to make a Renaissance sculpture, a cappuccino, an EDM song, an Instagram post, an an outfit for an American Revolution reenactment, a noir film, and so on and so forth. And it looks like this diversity is captured by the plurality of aesthetic practices that exist. A second closely related reason is that as... Kendall Walton famously argued the aesthetic value properties of an object depend not only on its non-aesthetic physical properties But on the category in which it is perceived Thus you can have a change in aesthetic value without a change in physical properties Just by changing the category in which you assess an aesthetic object so the exact same brushstroke might be muted in the category of German expressionist painting, but shocking in the category of American minimalism. And the same mutedness of a brushstroke might be an aesthetic merit in American tonalist painting, but an aesthetic demerit in the tradition of pop art. Aesthetic practices, again, look like a nice way of capturing this diversity of aesthetic values that get attributed to the same objects, since Aesthetic practices are partially individuated by the way they relate aesthetic value properties to the other properties that objects have I've left that sort of purposely kind of general But the main reason I want to appeal to aesthetic practices is that doing so helps to solve a puzzle about motivation I take it as a premise that whatever else is true of the aesthetic it is a domain of value and that however we wind up analyzing aesthetic value our aesthetic acts will be rational only if they're related in the right way to that value. So the puzzle about motivation I'm going to talk about is how to reconcile our interest in getting things right, in making correct judgments or performing the correct action, when it comes at the expense of our interest in something good, in something (coughs) of aesthetic value. So I go to the movies and I try to figure out just what was going on with the convoluted plot of that awful mystery thriller, You play an addictive, low-graphics video game, and you spend hours trying to find the key that takes you to the next level. Uh, I go hiking with friends, and I fuss over where everyone should stand to get just the right angle for my banal Instagram picture. What rationalizes these actions? That's the question behind these next three examples. So, I'll start with an artistic case drawing on a recent paper on score compliance by Guy Rohrbaugh, which is called, Why Play the Notes? Playing the notes just is how you get things right in musical performance. And everyone agrees that performers should play the notes. They have reasons to comply with the score. The question is why? Why does the fact that that note is in the score constitute a reason for a performer to play it? Without an answer to that question, one that connects the norm of score compliance to a distinct source of reasons, the very fact of score compliance can start to look irrational, like a fetish. The main argument I want to take from Rohrbaugh's paper is that it's not the case that we comply with the score as a means to realizing its aesthetic value. Now, an instrumental answer might look pretty plausible to this question at first glance, After all, I play each note in a Chopin etude, not for its own sake, but for the sake of playing the work as a whole. This looks like a paradigmatic case of an instrumental connection, albeit a non-causal one. I play the notes as a constitutive means to performing the work. What more do we want? Well, according to Warbaugh, this is true as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough since the instrumental answer gives us reasons for minimal compliance only. So assume we reject a demanding view like Nelson Goodman's on which perfect accuracy is required for score compliance. Then there will always be the possibility that a performer complies with the score even though she doesn't actually play all the notes. There's a range of less demanding views we could put in place of Goodman's, but let's just stipulate that as long as a competent listener can recognize the piece, then the performer has complied with the score. As it turns out though, plenty of competent listeners don't recognize when performers make mistakes, particularly particularly in densely textured orchestral works or intricate solo piano pieces. But clearly performers still do have reason to play all the notes even if something less than all the notes is required, instrumentally, for score compliance. So the instrumental answer doesn't account for the whole strength of the reasons to comply with the score. And the explanation for this, the explanation for why it doesn't, is the basis of a second objection, which is that all instrumental value is derivative value. We have reason to take the means only when we have reason to take uh, the ends. But we don't seem to treat score compliance as instrumentally transmitted in this way. That would imply that we have reason to play the notes only when a piece has aesthetic value, and that the worse the piece is, the less reason we have to comply with its score. But we don't treat our reasons for compliance as varying in weight with the value of the work. No matter its aesthetic value, we have reason to play all the notes. As Rohrbach puts it, quote, "...our reasons for compliance turn out to have a surprising deontological character. We think that these reasons have force even when we think that we could do better, and they retain their force tellingly even when we are playing what is absolutely terrible." So, as I would diagnose the problem, the instrumental answer implies a picture on which all of our reasons flow from evaluative norms which refer directly to aesthetic value. Now, it's true that many, maybe even most, of our aesthetic reasons are evaluative. So a musical performer can try a new bit of phrasing or experiment with tempo in a way that aims squarely at enhancing the aesthetic value of the performance. But our reasons to play the notes don't have this character. In playing the notes, we cannot be motivated directly by thoughts of aesthetic value, but instead by a disposition to get things right, regardless of aesthetic value. Well, why not? I think it's easiest to see with examples of the aesthetically bad, since they show us how aiming to get it right can come apart from the aesthetically good. So, I used to play the harpsichord, and I really love to play these thorny, fugue-like pieces by Thomas Tallis. And like many Baroque keyboard works, uh, some of Talus's end on what's known as the Picardy 3rd, a final major chord coming after a piece that's entirely in a minor key. I hate the Picardy 3rd. It's always struck me as a cheap and unearned happy resolution. I think a piece sounds better without it, so when I would practice alone, I wouldn't play it although I should say I would feel slightly guilty about that, Uh, but in performance, I would have to bracket that evaluative aesthetic reason. I wouldn't treat it as a reason for action. Now, the reason that I have to end on a beautiful minor chord is not outweighed by my reason to comply with the score. By stipulation, my aesthetic value-based reasons are actually stronger than my reasons for compliance. Instead, the structure is that the evaluative aesthetic reason is bracketed, and my reasons for compliance block the force of the weightier first-order considerations with which they're competing. So why does the fact that that note is in the score count as a reason for me to play it, even when it doesn't contribute to the aesthetic value of the performance? Because that's the norm of a practice, a norm that performers internalize. In the absence of a practice, I would have no such stringent reasons to play the notes. Now, of course, practices have distinct ways of interpreting this norm. Western classical performance scores typically annotate every single note and maybe some other markings, while jazz scores might just be a lead sheet with chords and a melody or even something more minimal. But however exactly the norm of getting it right is understood, practitioners internalize it in a way that brackets the value at which the practice aims. So, the example of score compliance might provoke two thoughts. First, it's something that practitioners do almost unthinkingly. Anyone who learned to play an instrument in childhood knows that playing the notes is not even up for dispute. So what about a case in which a practice comes into being? Second, Score compliance is a paradigmatic artistic practice. What about a non-artistic practice? So my second example illustrates how a non-artistic practice originates. And this one I'm borrowing from Nicholas Wolterstorff's Art Rethought, which is mostly about the social practices of art. But Wolterstorff uses an example which is not of the arts to motivate the very idea of a practice. This is the look of a mode lawn. In a social practice, there are multiple practitioners who are are mutually aware of what the others value, and so they perform certain actions for that practice. But a practice typically originates with just one or a few individuals. Someone first decided that they preferred lawns that had been grazed by sheep to lawns that were untouched. This is the actual history of this practice. That preference spread. Others began to value the look of a mowed lawn, too, and eventually new technologies arose, like mechanical lawnmowers, that cut the grass to a more uniform height than a flock of sheep ever could. Now what makes this practice social, according to Woltersdorf, is that people come to mow their lawns in part because others value that look, and then they develop social interactions together about the activity of lawn mowing. At some point, though, mowing the lawn, like score compliance, becomes something that is done for its own sake regardless of the overall aesthetic value generated. So maybe this example plays better in the States. I grew up in Central Texas, and even if the grass was brown and dried, you still had to cut it to a uniform length. No matter how ugly the lawn looks, otherwise you just have to cut the grass every week. Now, I might think that cutting the grass is not going to produce any additional aesthetic value, or that the dead grass would actually look better if it weren't cut. But if I'm part of this practice, then I bracket that evaluative aesthetic consideration. I'm not motivated by considerations of overall aesthetic value, but continue to mow the grass each week, just as, even though the etude isn't very good, I still play all the notes. So, my third example now, literary interpretation, is one that I chose because it's received probably the most philosophical attention. And what I want to say about this is that it shows the same structure as the other two examples. Before we ask whether or not a literary work is any good, we want to make sure we have understood it. We want our interpretation, the set of claims we make about a work's meaning, to match or fit the work in the meaning it contains. In short, we want to get it right. But there is significant philosophical debate about what it is for an interpretation to fit a work, notably surrounding the question of whether interpretations must be constrained by authorial intentions. So as I understand it, this is a debate about whether an interpretation can be fitting if it flouts an author's publicly available intentions concerning a work's meaning. Intentionalists say no, anti-intentionalists say yes. And the most common variety of anti-intentionalism offers an additional constraint on interpretation, which is that interpretations aim to maximize the value of a work. Fitting interpretations on this view are those <coughs> that put the work in its aesthetically best possible light. Now, these might look like a one, this might look like a one-level account on which all aesthetic reasons are evaluative. Yet, even the value-maximizers acknowledge a dimension of correctness distinct from value. Stephen Davies, for instance, says that the work must be seen in the best light that is consistent with preserving its identity, where identity is preserved by making claims that fit the work. Alan Goldman says aesthetic experience should be grounded in an acceptable interpretation of its object and an acceptable interpretation is one that maximizes the value of the experience while being constrained by the objective or base properties of the object. So these value-maximizing anti-intentionalists want our interpretations to latch on to something. Even if the work turns out to be bad, I still have to get it right. So I claim that we see here the same motivational structure as in the other two cases. I sometimes have to bracket my evaluative aesthetic reasons because I've internalized the norm to get the text right. And in some of my other work, I've argued that actually intentionalists and anti-intentionalists should agree on a shared policy governing interpretation, the policy that governs their interpretation. Because both sides, on the one hand, focus on literary works as they are, where work identity is determined in part, by successfully realized categorical intentions concerning title, genre, and allegory, for instance, and on the other hand, both sides allow that works can permissibly be interpreted for unintended meanings, since an intentional act can, under a different description, exhibit unintended features. So the fundamental dispute doesn't have anything to do with authorial intention at all, the fundamental dispute. Rather, it's about the value or the aim of an interpretive practice? Is it to appreciate the author's achievement, as intentionalist's claim, or to access the full range of values in a work, as anti-intentionalist's claim? So I'm not going to settle that question here, but regardless of how we do, I think we can take three lessons from these examples. First, at least some of our aesthetic reasons are not evaluative. That's just how the score goes, though a normative reason for action does not refer to any expected aesthetic value. Second, when our reasons have this character, they can be explained by the existence of a practice, in the absence of which there would be no such reason. This accounts for the autonomy of practices. Facts about the correct action to perform are explained by norms internal to a practice. And third, When there is such a practice, there's this constraint on motivation that agents must bracket their evaluative aesthetic reasons. Internalizing practice norms blocks an appeal to the value of the practice itself to rationalize particular actions within it. So this two-level picture I claim solves this puzzle by reconciling our interest in aesthetic correctness and aesthetic value. And you can see how this affects our taxonomy of aesthetic reasons. Some reasons are practice-internal, their content depends on the existence and norms of the practices that give rise to them. And these practice-internal reasons, as we've seen, are themselves of two kinds. Some are evaluative, appealing directly to considerations of aesthetic value as understood by the practice. For example, the fact that the complex harmonies can be better heard is a reason to use the pedal sparingly when you play Bach on the piano. Other practice internal reasons are constitutive, appealing to considerations about the nature of the practice itself. The fact that the Picardy third is in the score counts in favor of playing the chord. These are both reasons to perform aesthetic acts within aesthetic practices. However, not everyone is a member of every aesthetic practice. Some people are outsiders who want to know why they ought to take part. After all, not every action that is correct is an action that I have reason to perform. It's correct to play the Picardy third, but that doesn't give me any reason to simultaneously strike three keys on the harpsichord unless I have distinct practical reason to play Baroque keyboard music at all. Plenty of us are already practitioners in this classical music practice, we've probably never even considered why we ought to play the notes, because we take ourselves to have distinct practical reasons to engage with classical music. But each of us surely wonders what everyone else is up to in some other region of aesthetic space. What kind of technology are the serious coffee drinkers using? What's up with memes on TikTok? What does anybody get out of collecting Hummel figurines? Outsiders are asking about their practice external reasons, which I take to be reasons that appeal to something about the value of the practice as a whole. And it's the idea of outsiders that takes us to the source question about aesthetic normativity. So, I should just say there are a lot of other tricky questions that a practice-based account ought to be able to answer including questions about the individuation of practices, how we tell one from another, questions about the source of members' authority within a practice, and questions about the dynamism of practices, how practices change. For me, though, the most interesting question is about the source of aesthetic normativity. In virtue of what do I have any reason to adopt any particular aesthetic norms? Now the distinction between practice internal and practice external norms is an example of a more general metanormative distinction between thin and robust normativity the thin normativity of what is fitting merited or appropriate according to some standard of correctness and the robust normativity of What we really have reason to do or what we have authoritative reason to do or what we just plain ought to do To put it in a couple different ways. And the reason I find this source question so interesting is that it strikes me as an example of what Mary Mothersill calls a primitive question, the kind of question that we care about pre-philosophically, and that pushes us into theorizing philosophically in the first place. Mothersill thought the primitive question of aesthetics was, why does this object move me? Don Lopez, inspired by Mothersill, has offered a different primitive question. What is the place of aesthetic value in the good life? I think of the primitive question in a slightly different way. What kind of aesthetic life do I as an agent have reason to lead? And for me, this question arises pre-philosophically because, as with moral value and epistemic value, we're confronted with far more aesthetic value than we could respond to in one lifetime. And one advantage of theorizing the aesthetic domain in terms of practices is that it gives us some more determinate structure to this primitive question. We're all outsiders to at least some aesthetic practices, so we'd like to have some rational basis for deciding which practices to opt into, knowing that once we are practitioners, the practice will largely take over the job of telling us how to act and which attitudes to have, in terms of those internal norms. So, in the rest of the talk, I want to offer some more speculative remarks on this source (laughs) question. I think the two most discussed answers on offer both ground aesthetic normativity in what is taken to be a distinctively aesthetic value, such that we would have an aesthetically rational basis for practice choice. So maybe still the most popular answer appeals to aesthetic pleasure. On the classic Humean development of this view, an object is aesthetically valuable in virtue of the pleasure it non-contingently affords to competent agents. And the most aesthetically valuable objects are identified for us by true judges, whose sensitivities equip them to identify the cross-cultural masterworks that will afford the most pleasure. And this has the potential to give us a clear ranking of practices in terms of the quantity of pleasure they afford. Notoriously, however, it gives all aesthetic agents the same aim, apparently requiring us to abandon our unique aesthetic personalities for the sake of some greater expected pleasure. And there's a whole host of objections related to that line of thought. It's worth pointing out that there are other ways you could develop an aesthetic pleasure theory besides the classic Humean one. Um, For instance, a pleasure theorist could deny that what makes an object aesthetically valuable is the pleasure it affords, in favor of holding that aesthetic value is a property of objects constituted with aesthetic practices. And such a theorist could also go agent-relative to the level of reasons. Agents have reason to attend to the aesthetic objects that are most capable of giving them pleasure in fact. I'm not going to defend that view here, but just note the comparative claim that I think it yields a more plausible answer to the primitive question than the classic Humean hedonism. A recent rival view to aesthetic pleasure account developed by Don Lopez appeals to aesthetic achievement. Lopez's account is explicitly a practice-based account, since it explains our aesthetic reasons with reference to existing practices, And it's also agent-relative at the level of reasons. Not every agent has reason to take part in every practice. Fans of experimental minimalist electronica don't have reason to travel to Bayreuth every summer, as Wagnerians do. But on Lopez's view, our reasons to act aesthetically within this complex network of practices derive from the normativity of achievement. As he says, if we have reason to do anything, we have reason to do it well. And this allows him to generate an ordinal ranking from an individual agent's point of view of aesthetic practices, thereby explaining which practices she ought to opt into. Agents have derived aesthetic reason based on whether or not they would achieve to opt into some but not all aesthetic practices. So to take Tom's example, Aaron, he says, who is good at making North Indian curries, has strong-derived aesthetic reason to learn to make go-on curries. Not so Rosalina, who does not cook. So Aaron, in virtue of his competence with cooking in a similar practice, has practiced external reason to move into a different practice, a reason that Rosalina lacks. Now, Lopez rightly recognizes that agents have plenty of non-aesthetic reasons to opt into a new aesthetic practice, Reasons of partiality, reasons of forming a social identity, prestige-based reasons, wealth-based reasons. But he holds that we have these derived aesthetic reasons to opt in, which are grounded in the normativity of achievement. So I want to offer a counterexample here. uh, A counterexample which comes from Sarah Paul and Jennifer Morton, who use it in a different context, which I'm adapting here. Uh, I've put the first part of this on the handout, but it's sort of a long quotation. So, they say, consider the agent who values cooking and fine cuisine, even though his palate is indiscriminate, his execution sloppy, and his knowledge of cooking techniques limited. This agent is in a relatively bad position to engage with the activity of cooking, yet he eagerly watches cooking shows, subscribes to cooking magazines, and eats at trendy restaurants. It seems that in virtue of his love for cooking, he has more reason to take classes and spend time experimenting with cooking than someone else whom cooking leaves completely cold. This cannot be explained by his superior relation to cooking, since he is by hypothesis in a worse position than many others. One might argue that his love of cooking indicates that he will enjoy this activity, and that one has additional reason to engage with valuable activities if one will enjoy them but it is far from clear that the balance of pleasures and pains will always work out in favor of this suggestion. After all, our bumbling chef might get incredibly frustrated and disappointed as he pursues his beloved hobby. We suggest, this is Paul and Morton, that this example lends support to an alternative view, perhaps the valuing itself is what gives rise to the additional reasons in question. End of lengthy quote. So suppose you agree that the bumbling chef does actually have these reasons to pursue his hobby. Then it looks like what we have practice external reason to do cannot be fully explained in terms of achievement, since by hypothesis the bumbling chef is not likely to achieve. This example, by the way, also works against taking pleasure to be the source of our practice external reasons, since the bumbling chef is frequently frustrated in his aims, and doesn't always enjoy the activity of cooking. But I'm gonna set aside hedonism in favor of focusing on the network theory. Now, one way for Lopez to respond might be to claim that all agents have weak standing reason to mess around with unfamiliar aesthetic practices. But this response can't work because as the story is set up, the bumbling chef has gone well beyond experimentation into extended engagement with the activity. Another way Lopez could respond would be to deny that the bumbling chef really has these reasons to pursue his hobby. And this is, I believe, what he is committed to, given his formulation in his book, which I want to look at more closely. This is also on the handout. He writes, what we need is a conception of a reason to achieve by joining an aesthetic practice that is not a fact of the form X is V, where V is some aesthetic value fact. Instead, it is a fact about an unfamiliar K, a fact of the form K is F, where K is an aesthetic practice, that gives some agent reason to develop competence in K. Call such a fact a derived aesthetic reason. That is, the fact that K is F is derived aesthetic reason for A to acquire a core aesthetic competence in K equals The fact that K is F lends weight to the proposition that A would achieve were A to acquire core aesthetic competence in K. The fact that K is F is obviously a fact that stands K in relation to A. Hopefully it was helpful to have that printed on the handout for you. Um, So applying this to the cooking example, the fact that, say, French cooking, requires competence in chopping herbs, whisking eggs, and melting pounds and pounds of butter, is a fact that stands the practice of French cooking in relation to our bumbling chef. Because he lacks such competences, he has little to no derived reason to opt into French cooking. Now, there seem to be two possible readings of the proposition that A would achieve. An objective reading holds that A would, in point of fact, achieve. But we don't need to dive into the details of Laurie Paul's work on transformative experience or Agnes Callard's work on aspiration to know that coming to appreciate new values is risky and we cannot know in advance where it will take us and whether we will, in fact, achieve. So more plausible reading is subjective and better fits with Lopez's text since he talks about having better prospects for aesthetic achievement. So A's derived aesthetic reasons stem from facts about what A reasonably believes he could achieve. My objection is really very, very simple. What if he doesn't want to achieve? I don't just mean at a given moment of akrasia, but at all, ever. My existing competences, it seems to me, give me lots and lots of derived aesthetic reasons. The fact that I was good at playing the piano gave me derived aesthetic reason to take organ lessons but I hated playing the organ. Conversely, the bumbling chef's existing incompetences give him no derived aesthetic reason to cook, but he loves cooking. So the intuition I'm trying to elicit here is that uh, Lopez's account fails to capture the way that our derived aesthetic reasons depend in part on our preferences, on what we like and dislike, going all the way to what we love or value in a robust way. Uh, he says, quote, Having observed how being good at doing something often goes with loving to do it, we tend to reason that we must love what we are good at doing. But we reason fallaciously. We can sacrifice what he want, but we want on the altar of achievement. That's what he says. And of course, he's right that we can do that. But I worry that his account implies that in order to do what we have most aesthetic reason to do, we must sacrifice what we want whenever it comes apart from what we happen to be good at. Instead, I want to maintain that the bumbling chef simply values the activity of cooking, and that valuing somehow grounds the reasons he has. Now, Lopez might respond by granting that the bumbling chef does have these valuing-based reasons, he might even allow that those reasons outweigh his derived aesthetic reasons against cooking. So maybe the bumbling chef does have most overall reason to pursue his hobby, it's just that it goes against the grain of aesthetic rationality, of what he has most aesthetic reason to do. But now I want to step back and ask, what was it that made Lopez's derived aesthetic reasons aesthetic reasons at all? they aren't evaluative aesthetic reasons because they don't make reference to aesthetic value. Remember that they aren't facts of the form X is V, but facts of the form K is F, where Fs are facts that relate to agents' competences. And they aren't constitutive aesthetic reasons either because there isn't anything like a single practice of aesthetic achievement. So Lopez says if you have reason to do something, you have reason to do it well, But that doesn't imply that what you have reason to do is what you just can do well. Um, In fact, to be fair to Lopez, he actually seems to recognize that derived aesthetic reasons aren't really aesthetic, except perhaps insofar as they concern aesthetic practices. They make reference to a practice with aesthetic properties or something like that. The normativity of achievement is what he calls plain vanilla normativity. Normativity that may well be found outside the aesthetic domain. But then it looks like our reasons of achievement don't have any particular claim on aesthetic rationality. They can compete with other practical reasons, and then they will often lose out. Notice, by the way, that the same is true of hedonism, the normativity of pleasure is another kind of plain vanilla normativity. We have plenty of pleasure-based reasons that don't have anything to do with the aesthetic domain. And our hedonic reasons can compete with and lose out to practical reasons of other kinds. So this suggests a meta-lesson, which is that on both hedonism and the network theory, there is nothing distinctively aesthetic about the source of aesthetic normativity at all. The source question, in virtue of what are aesthetic values reason-giving for us, does not appear to have a distinctively aesthetic answer. The challenge, I think, then, is to give the right kind of answer, one that relates the aesthetic domain to something about the good life or another source of reasons more generally. I think pleasure and achievement are both the right kind of answer, though I've argued that neither is actually sufficient on its own to answer the source question. So, I just want to think briefly about what some other possible answers might be to this source question. I think another obvious candidate would be a moral value, such as, perhaps, well-being. But I don't think this is the right kind of answer. I should opt into the practices in which I would promote the greatest well-being? That seems like the wrong place for moral considerations to enter the structure. More plausibly, I think, moral considerations function as enablers which have to be in place in order for a practice to give rise to robust or authoritative normative reasons at all. For instance, a practice might need to be reasonably conducive to general human flourishing, or not in violation of what is morally impermissible, or something like that. Maybe that would rule out something like YouTube makeup tutorials, if you think that makeup tutorials are promoting sort of harmful gender-based norms or something like that. So it's possible that the only way to, dis- to secure the distinctiveness of aesthetic normativity is a primitivist account, which holds that there is no more fundamental answer to the question of why aesthetic values are reason-giving, because beauty is a basic value on a par with, say, truth or goodness. Karen Goradeski, who's attracted to this view, uh, puts it in this way, quote, the general question, why are aesthetically valuable objects, in general, valuable or good, makes as little sense as the questions, why are virtuous people good? Or, why is a life of well-being good? Similarly, I'm thinking, the questions in virtue of, what, do I have reason to be virtuous? Or, in virtue of, what, do I have reason to live a life of well-being? Or, in virtue of, what, do I have reason to appreciate beauty? Those questions would make no sense on a primitivist account either. So the primitivist answer to the source question would be something like just appreciate and create beauty wherever you can. Uh, I don't have any particular objection to this view because I'm not entirely sure how to spell it out. My only immediate worry is that I would like to have, for myself if no one else, a more action-guiding answer, one that surveys the aesthetic practices that I might opt into and gives me some rational basis for deciding among them. But it's actually open to the primitivist to agree with me and simply hold that there is no distinctive aesthetic rationality to appeal to in deciding which practices to opt into. If that's so, then I want to return to the bumbling chef one more time. I claim that the right kind of answer to the source question will be one that relates the aesthetic domain to something about the good life or a source of reasons and other of reasons more generally. So I could agree with the primitivist claim about aesthetic value. Aesthetically valuable objects aren't valuable because or in virtue of any benefits that they bring to us. I could even agree with the primitivist claim about aesthetic reasons. There is no distinctively aesthetic rationality outside of practice internal reasons and norms. But I do think that there must be reasons that bear on the question of practice choice and that they just aren't exhausted by pleasure or achievement. Here's one last way to think about it, and then I'll stop. Derek Parfit famously distinguished three theories of self-interest. One is hedonism, what's best for us is what gives most happiness. Another is the objective list theory, some things are good for us even if we don't want them. But there's a third option, the desire fulfillment theory. What's best for us is what best fulfills our desires. Now the Aesthetic Pleasure Theory is obviously a kind of hedonism and I think that Lopez's view is a version of the objective list theory with only one item on it, namely achievement, but another live option is an Aesthetic Desire Fulfillment Theory. This would be a theory of aesthetic normativity, or at least what we're now calling aesthetic normativity knowing that there's nothing distinctively aesthetic about it, that allows for practice choice independently of what is most likely to lead us to achieve or to maximize pleasure. So while, as promised, I haven't defended a positive answer to any of the three central questions of aesthetic normativity, I have argued for the relevance of aesthetic practices to answering those questions, and I have insisted that we need to be able to answer them if we're going to answer the more primitive question of what kind of aesthetic life we have most reason to lead. Thank you.